Hey everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today we are going to talk about the century of the self, which is a great documentary by Adam Curtis and it talks all about uh, how American corporations sort of use mind games in order to sell people things. And the reason that I wanted to talk about this documentary and then tie it into the piece Life After Lifestyle by Toby is because consumer spending is 70% of the economy. And it's really important to think about why consumer spending is so important and how it drives the economy forward and what it means when consumer spending like can't be as spendy as it always has been or how we can think of um, a world beyond just defining people as consumers how people even began to get defined as consumers you know how do we sort of reduce this consumption power that it has because Consumption is not inherently a bad thing, but it does have two big problems. Number one, it's really bad for the environment. Like the fact that we have planned obsolescence where you have your technology just not working after a few years is, is horrible. But of course, all in the name of profits, we have so many different iterations of the exact same products. Like, do we need 47 types of spoons? Probably not, but it, <laughs> people like to have choices. And that gets into the second part where if people begin to define themselves through the things that they're consuming, that can create a weird cognitive dissonance where you're like, who am I actually? Do I know who I am outside of the things that I purchase? So we're gonna talk about all that today. I'm going to do a whiteboard session. So um, this is post video I'm filming right now. Uh, but yeah, I hope that it's interesting and I'll link everything below. So yeah. Century of the self is summed up in one sentence by the idea that American corporations are convinced that they can sell products by connecting them to people's unconscious feelings. The piece begins by examining Sigmund Freud and Freud's beginnings because when he first began doing his psychoanalysis, he freaks people out. The leaders of the time did not like the idea that everybody was driven by these dangerous instinctual drives that Freud was talking about. Eddie Bernays, who was Sigmund Freud's nephew, was not so worried about these dangerous instinctual drives. Rather, he saw this as something that could be used to sell people more things. He did a lot of work around the time of Woodrow Wilson, and Woodrow Wilson was around the time of the war, and Eddie Bernays saw how people responded to Woodrow Wilson as a liberator of the people. He was this man who could create a new world in which the individual will be free, and Woodrow Wilson had become a hero of the masses through essentially propaganda and, of course, action. And so Bernays was curious. He was wondering if he could replicate this same ideology that surrounded Woodrow Wilson of mass persuasion, but in peacetime. So for Eddie Bernays, it was like, how do you sell people things? He thought that people were irrational, not factual. During this time, it was like, if we show people factual information, they're going to be able to respond to it. But Eddie Bernays was like, uh-uh, no, you have to appeal to this irrational emotion that everybody has. So the first example of this was cigarettes. Cigarette manufacturers were like, hey, well, we want to sell a lot more cigarettes and women are not buying our cigarettes. Eddie Bernays was like, listen, I'll take care of it. I'll have women hold cigarettes during this massive parade. And I'll portray cigarettes as torches of freedom. I'll call them torches of freedom. And so anybody who pushes back against cigarettes is no longer a part of the women's suffrage movement. They don't seem to believe in equality because equality and these torches of freedom, cigarettes were now intertwined. There was emotion, there was memory, there was rational phrase involved in cigarettes becoming torches of freedom. For Eddie Bernays, he was like, 
you have to persuade people to behave irrationally. And if you link products to emotional desires and feelings, that is how you do it. This object of a cigarette became a powerful emotional symbol in the world of how these women wanted to essentially be seen by others. And so cigarette sales boomed. And during that time, people were still buying mostly for need rather than for want. Of course, the rich people were still buying luxury goods, but everything was advertised in the form of practicality. There was nothing really about this is flashy. This is going to describe you. This is going to complete you as a person. It was like, this is a durable shoe that will get you through your workday. And there was a partner at Lehman Brothers who was sort of along the same lines as Eddie Bernays, who was like, listen, we have to shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture because they're not purchasing enough right now. But if we train them to desire to want new things before the old thing has been entirely consumed, that will create a booming economy in America. We have to have man's desires overshadow his needs. And during this time, there was no American consumer. There was just the American worker. There was just the American owner. Consumptionism took over democracy democracy. The American citizen's first importance to his country is no longer that of a citizen, but of that of a consumer, which is concerning because that changes the idea of democracy right on its head. And of course, consumerism created a stock market boom. Walter Lippmann emerged and he was like, well, human beings are driven by these unconscious, irrational forces. And we really need to rethink democracy because these people can't govern themselves. We need a new elite. And so if you can control people's inner desires and give them consumerism, consumer products, you can manage the irrational force of the masses, which is what Eddie Bernays called engineering consent. Herbert Hoover was in office and he was like, yeah, man, this freaking rocks. You know, you've, you've taken over the job of creating desire and have transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines, machines which have become the key to economic progress. This is like not great, right? They have all this immediate gratification, this happiness that comes from just purchasing things, but it doesn't change their objective circumstances. It doesn't change the world around them at all. The idea of democracy at its heart was about changing the relations of power that had governed the world for so long, but Eddie Bernays was one of maintaining the relations of power, even if it meant one needed to stimulate the psychological lives of the public. And if you stimulate their rational self, then leadership can go on doing what it needs to do. FDR came into office and he was like, listen, we just had a freaking Great Depression. It seems like business is not the key driver to everything being beautiful and good. And we need government. We need government to come in and people are not stupid. Gallup was like, hey, we're going to ask people these really factual questions and we're not going to manipulate their emotions. We're just going to trust that people know what they want. Eddie Bernays, though, was like, listen, no, that's not going to be happening. So in 1939, New York hosted the World's Fair. Eddie Bernays was all a part of it, and he insisted that the theme be the link between democracy and American business. And so at the heart of this fair was this giant white dome called Democracy, and all of it was about corporations. It was a form of democracy that depended on treating people not as active citizens, like FDR wanted to, but as passive consumers, because Eddie Bernays believed that was the key to control. Don't give people the choice to choose, give them consumption to choose from. Man had a really good quote within this. He says, now that I can say I, that I learned that the ratio between the rational and the rational in America is very much in favor of the rational. There's much greater unhappiness, much more suffering. It's much more of a sad country than one would imagine from the advertisements that you made a much more problematic country. After the World Fair, after FDR, people began to have a mental health crisis. The United States was in and out of wars during this time, and all of a sudden, the people who had been drafted had these hidden anxieties, these fears, and it 
the whole era became about controlling emotions because it was all about controlling your actions so you didn't impact the people around you. But during this time, there was still manipulation of the consumer going on. So there was a man called Ditcher who did work with all sorts of corporations and Betty Crocker had done a lot of manufacturing around instant convenience foods. One of the things that they produced was a cake mix. But housewives during the 1950s were not all about that Betty Crocker cakes mix. So Ditcher did a bunch of focus groups where housewives talked about what they felt about the cakes mix and he found out that they felt this unconscious guilt about this easy cake mix where all they had to do was pour the cake mix out of the box and they were like this is too easy too simple it's not challenging us so he was like add an egg add an egg to your cake mix and that'll be good enough for you because that removes this barrier of guilt and so you give them a sense of participation and he asked is it wrong to give people what they want by taking away their defenses helping to remove their defenses another example of bernays influence was with the united fruit company who owned a bunch of banana plantations you're probably familiar with the stories but in 1950 a certain president was elected and he was like i'm going to kick united fruit out because united fruit had controlled this area of guatemala and central america through dictators and he was like listen i'm gonna kick them out like this sucks and united fruit was like you're not gonna do that actually eddie bernays came in and he portrayed arbenz who was a democratic socialist as a communist which was very scary to americans back then president eisenhower agreed that america should topple the arbenz government um and the cia organized a coup bernays was a part of all of that and the whole thing that got most people behind it was the idea that this country had been taken over by a communist but this man was not a communist bernays just painted him as one so he was reshaping reality reshaping public opinion in a way that is rather manipulative Arthur Miller, who had been Marilyn Monroe's husband, talked about her experience with psychoanalysis, his experience with psychoanalysis alongside that after her untimely death. He said, my argument with so much psychoanalysis these days is the preconception that suffering is a mistake or a sign of weakness or a sign even of illness, when in fact, possibly the greatest truths we know will have come out of people's suffering. That The problem is not to undo suffering or to wipe it off the face of the earth, but to make it inform our lives instead of trying to cure ourselves of it constantly and avoid it and avoid anything but that lobotomized sense of what they call happiness. There's too much of an attempt, it seems to me, at controlling man rather than freeing him, of defining him rather than letting him go and it's part of the whole ideology of this age which is power mad marcuse who is also a psychoanalyst during this time also criticized the psychoanalysis that was going on in manipulating consumers but he approached it from a resource waste side he talked about the planned obsolescence the production of innumerable brands and gadgets that were always the same the production of innumerable different models of automobiles and at the same time, th this weird prosperity led to a strange existence because this incredible quantity of aggressiveness and destructiveness accumulated because of the empty prosperity that people had. They didn't know where to allocate themselves. He wasn't a fan of what Freud thought about people, where everybody was reduced to expressing their feelings and identities through objects. He said this was a one-dimensional man, someone who was conformed, repressed, and the psychoanalysts were the corrupt agents who ruled America. The Weathermen Revolutionary Group came up during this time, the Black Panthers, and the whole idea was like people were becoming more and more aware of the idea of a policeman inside all of our heads, that the policeman was going to be destroyed by overthrowing the state and the corporations that had put them there. This is really where we began to see people lean into the personal. 
the personal had to become political. The Esalen Institute came about during this time, creating individuals to allowing individuals to express their true inner selves and it began to disrupt a lot of industries, including the mass production industry and life insurance. College students were not buying life insurance when they left university. They didn't feel like they needed it anymore. Consumers were not so interested in mass produced objects, but they were interested in individuality. This really became the time that I think individualism sort of took over America. EST was a big part of this and the whole thing was like, it's not selfish to only think about yourself, it's your highest duty. The idea was that you could be happy and fully self-developed on your own, socialism in one person, which is essentially capitalism. Marketers had to respond to this and they created the values and lifestyle marketing because they had to respond to this individuality. Ronald Reagan is probably the most emblematic of this system and <laughs> the idea of individualism. Reagan and Thatcher during this time uh, were talking all about individual freedom and the hierarchy, the inner directed, just building things for these people who were like, we're the only ones that matter in the whole world. Self-actualization is the only thing that will keep us sane. Capitalism, of course, followed alongside that and said, okay, if you wanna be yourself, we'll give you products that represent you. In this market that had been like, okay, there's, un there's limited needs, everybody has what they want. There's a market of unlimited, ever-changing needs because of self-expressiveness. This gave economies unlimited horizons. The world in which people felt like they were rebelling against conformity was not a threat to business, but its greatest opportunity. All moral judgment was appropriately viewed through the lens of personal satisfaction. The ultimate ending point of that logic is that there's no society, only a bunch of individual people making individual choices about their own individual well-being. It wasn't so much about products serving a certain need or even a certain desire, but what does it mean emotionally? Like, will this handbag make me beautiful? Like, will this bag of flour make me happier? And Ronald Reagan was like, listen, yeah, you are the only person on the face of the planet that matters. You don't have to support anybody else. He made the denial of compassion respectable. He said, you worked hard, you made your money, you don't have to feel guilty about refusing to throw it away on people who choose to be on welfare, choose to be homeless, or choose to be hungry. And of course, that's not how a society works. That's not how collective awareness works. Individuals were like, well, if I just go and buy things, like that's how it works in the business world. So why shouldn't it work like that in the politics world? And Clinton, Bill Clinton took this to a whole nother level. He, I mean, suburban people were essentially running foreign and domestic policy during that time in order for reelection to appeal to these personal lives and personal anxieties in these swing states so he could win power. A society in which the needs and desires of individuals were read and fulfilled in the free market. And so democracy, as we've talked about was reduced from something which assumes an active citizenry to something that is predicated on the idea, of the, the idea of the public as passive consumers, as people who essentially you're just giving them doggy treats. You're not really thinking that they have any sorts of thoughts in their head. Although we feel we are free in reality, we, like the politicians, have become the slaves of our own desires. We've forgotten that we can be more than that. There are the other sides to human nature. I feel like the piece Life After Lifestyle is the best reaction to this without directly being a reaction. So Toby talks about subcultures and like how consumption drives subcultures. So mechanical keyboards, hypebeast culture, like you're a part of something where you're just buying things. There's a couple lines in there that I think really tie in well to the century of the self. An economy where culture is made in the service of brands uh, to be even more literal, cultural production has become a service industry for the supply chain. All culture is made in service of for-profit brands at every scale and size. And so 
what all of this is saying is that consumerism is like not inherently a bad thing. It's what keeps the economy going. It's what keeps businesses going. It's what gives people jobs. But it's interesting to dive into why it's happening. So we're served over 10,000 ads a day. And a lot of times, as Toby talks about in the piece Life After Lifestyle, as the century of the self talked about, we end up defining ourselves by the things that we're purchasing, by the things that we're consuming. And sometimes that'll attach us to a certain community. Sometimes that'll create a more individualistic desire. But the thing is, uh, we're being influenced, like we're being marketed to. And that's just like part of being in this economy. You just know that you're being marketed to. But I feel like this idea where there's a disconnect. Um, so one line that I mentioned in the whiteboard was this idea of empty prosperity because you have planned obsolescence, you have so many options, you have so many different things that you can choose from at any given moment, but there's still like this gap. There's still this missing link. And I feel like that is only getting more and more prominent because it seems like, and this is common knowledge, like there's been papers and essays written about this, but it seems like we're trying to fill a gap of community, of love, of not to get all woo woo, but of people with products. And so you can buy all the things in the world, but if you end up defining yourself by a brand rather than the people who are around you, that can create a weird sense of cognitive dissonance. And so the reason I wanted to do this long video about this documentary and tie it into Life After Lifestyle was because I feel like it's really important to discuss the direction of culture relative to the economy. So with Toby's piece, which is a little bit more updated, all culture is made in service of for-profit brands at every scale and size. And so when that happens, you end up losing an element of creativity. And I like, we are constantly responding to algorithms and that's just the way it is. But when you're constantly responding to algorithms in terms of being a creator or producer, you lose out on some, um, some beauty because you're like, I have to do things a certain way in order to appeal to this consumer system or this computer system. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but when culture is made in service of brands and for money constantly, we lose out, I think, on a lot of serendipity, on a lot of beauty, on a lot of creativity. And so that, I think, is more like a long-term issue because when you think about, I've talked about it before, like nostalgia, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, just the standardization of culture across the board, you lose out on like so much, um, future economic growth. Like you lose out on, on future economic wheels spinning because all of a sudden everything is the same. And when everything is the same, your foundation is flat and it's a little bit harder to build upwards. I think it's super important to talk about this kind of stuff because consumer spending is 70% of the economy. And we often don't think about the implications of what that means. And consumers save the economy this time around. Like the whole reason that we've been able to skirt a recession is because of fiscal policy, because of the CHIPS Act, because of the IRA, because of the IIGA, but also because consumers have been spending. Because people have been out there going to concerts, Taylor Swift Dynamics. It's a huge part of it. But when we think about um, just the underlying mechanics of that, it's important to think about how we can maintain that creative solution, which Toby talks about in his piece, how we can make sure that people still have the room to iterate, the room to be creative within a world that pushes back on, on things that are not standardized, even more so than it did in the big manufacturing era. So thanks for hanging with me. I hope this is interesting. I'll link the full documentary below, as well as Toby's piece and my notes on um, all of this as well. But I hope that you enjoyed. Thanks so much for hanging out, and I'll talk to you very soon. Bye.